Father, one more time, guide our minds and our thoughts as we explore your word and try to find truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, now, this afternoon, buckle up on your seatbelts, and let's see if we can find something that maybe you hadn't thought of before. The reason for this message was a review article back in 1997 entitled, Will the Real Evangelical Adventist Please Stand Up? Got my attention. It was by no less than the president of the General Conference at that time, Robert Falkenberg. Here's what he said. I consider myself a true evangelical Adventist. I hope you do, too. That's how he started the article. And then he spent an article describing things and he concluded, I wish everyone in the church were an evangelical Adventist because inherent in the word Adventist should be the concept of evangelical. First thing to understand, we are not talking about evangelism or evangelistic. Those are completely different terms. Yes, every Adventist should be an evangelistic Adventist. Evangelical is something completely different. It has to do with a certain set of beliefs about how one is saved and remains saved. And that's what we're going to talk about this afternoon. The word evangelical. Now, after this article came out in the Adventist Review, a letter came into the Adventist Review that said this. As a Christian broadcaster at KARM Radio, I come into contact with many of other denominations who call themselves evangelical Christians. I feel a very definite connection with these dear brothers and sisters as we look at the cross. They and I are all saved by faith in Jesus. This article gave me the confidence to move forward, proudly claiming the title of an evangelical Christian. Thank you, Elder Falkenberg, for setting my mind at ease. So we have encouragement here, you see, that this is what something we can do. Another article came along a little later. I want to be an evangelical Christian. Here is something that came along that I thought was very interesting. Uh, this is an evangelical, now former Seventh-day Adventist. No longer a Seventh-day Adventist, now an evangelical. He took this very review that I referred to on his website and he said, my words and those of D.M. Canwright most likely carry no weight with you. D.M. Canwright back in the early part of our century said there's no sanctuary in heaven. This sanctuary doctrine is not right. Essentially what Desmond Ford did later. So he said, what I'm saying to you, Adventist, and what D.M. Canwright says to you, Adventist, they carry no weight with you. Will you listen to the words of the president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists? That's how he used that article. If you won't listen to me and you won't listen to Canwright, listen to what your president is saying. So, you see, this article had quite an impact in various ways, in various forms. Now, one other thing to understand. Before the 1950s, the, the phrase evangelical Adventist did not exist. If you would use it in the 30s or the 40s, someone would have stared at you blankly. What do you mean evangelical Adventist? 
One person just came up to me in between the meetings and said the word evangelical isn't used where I live in my part of the world. And so evangelical Adventist wasn't the term used in the 30s and the 40s, but somehow after the 50s and some interesting discussions we had with evangelical leaders, the term came into some prominence after that time. And today evangelical is a word that is used quite often. What I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go to an evangelical, not what I believe about what he says or any Adventist, but I want to know from an evangelical Christian what he understands the term to be. So I get it right and I'm not putting words into someone's mouth. The evangelical that I'm going to use is a very clear thinker. His name is Kenneth Samples. Walter Martin, for many years, was the director of Christian Research Institute, I think they called it. Uh, they had a magazine called the Christian Research Journal, and he was the foremost analyzer of the cults in religion. What is a cult? What is a mainstream Christian? And he was the one, Walter Martin, in the 50s that came to Adventism and asked a simple question, are you a cult or are you Christian? That was his basic question, and he wanted us to give answers to him. Now, Walter Martin passed away, and Kenneth Samples became the one who followed in his footsteps. And again, both Walter Martin and Kenneth Samples know Adventism very well. They understand what Adventists are all about. They've held many discussions with Seventh-day Adventists. They have spoken in our meetings in our churches. They know what Seventh-day Adventists believe. And he had a little a little production that he made called an updated assessment of Seventh-day Adventism. Now, this is Kenneth Samples looking into the Seventh-day Adventist church and giving his perspective. By the mid 1970s, two distinct factions had emerged within Seventh-day Adventism, traditional Adventism, which defended many pre 1950 Adventist positions and evangelical Adventism, which emphasized the Reformation understanding of righteousness by faith, Martin Luther, John Calvin, etc. So evangelical Adventism and traditional Adventism are the names he uses to describe the two differing views of various things. And what he did in a very nice, succinct way is he identified the main issues which divide evangelical Adventists from what he calls traditional Adventists. Okay? And so I'm going to put those on the board as we go through this so we have a clear picture of it. The first doctrinal issue that he said is crucial to understand is righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith, according to an evangelical, includes justification only. That's very crucial to understand. Justification only. The only thing required for salvation. And is a judicial act of God whereby he declares sinners to be just. Declaring. Declaring righteous, declaring saved, declaring holy on the basis of Christ's own righteousness. Sanctification is the accompanying fruit and not the root of salvation. So sanctification will come out of this, but it is not a cause of our salvation. 
You are saved by justification alone and sanctification comes along as a product of that down the line. It is a fruit and not a root of salvation. So that is the first point to clearly understand what is meant by righteousness by faith. Justification being forgiveness, sanctification being growth to holiness. Forgiveness is salvation. Growth comes along later. Number two, the human nature of Christ. The human nature of Christ. Jesus Christ possessed a sinless human nature with no inclination toward sin. Christ's human nature was like that of Adam's before the fall. So Christ had a sinless nature. Nature like Adam before the fall. So Jesus Christ, no tendencies to sin within him. No pulls from within to overeating, to, to jealousy, to discouragement, etc. Tempted only from outside, never from within. All right? Number three, 1844. Jesus Christ entered into the most holy place, which is heaven itself, at his ascension. The sanctuary doctrine and the investigative judgment have no basis in Scripture. All right? So Jesus Christ went into the most holy place at his ascension. No judgment, as we understand it, no investigative judgment in Scripture. Pardon me for spelling it the English way. No investigative judgment in Scripture. Number four, sinless perfection is not possible this side of heaven. You cannot live without sin in this life. No sinlessness possible this side of heaven. And number five, neither Ellen White nor her writings are infallible and they should not be used as doctrinal authority. No doctrinal authority. All right? Five major points now of what he understands an evangelical Seventh-day Adventist to believe. Righteousness by faith, justification only, Christ a different nature than ours, no judgment beginning in 1844, no sinless perfection before Jesus comes, and no doctrinal authority in Ellen White. Devotional value, yes. Doctrinal authority, no. All right? Then he did a nice job of identifying what he calls traditional Adventism. And here is how he started it, again with righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith includes both justification and sanctification. Now, understand again the difference. In the evangelical view, justification saves even though sanctification is not doing very well. You hope it's doing well. You hope you're growing. But even if you're falling sometimes, even if your life comes a lot short, as long as you are justified, you are saved. 
You can have some bad sanctified apples on the tree and still be saved. So sanctification is a result, not a cause. In this, both justification and sanctification are essential to salvation. You cannot have one without the other. If one is missing, the other is not there. Either one. Justification and sanctification. Our standing before God rests both in the imputed and imparted righteousness of Christ, God's work for me and in me. So in this view, it is both declaring and making righteous. God does more than declare us righteous. He makes us righteous in the same act of justification, not later on in sanctification. Not five years down the line, but right now he both declares and makes us new creatures, making righteous as well as declaring righteous. Now, I'm going to interrupt right there his uh, his presentation and ask the question, did he get it right? Did he really identify what Seventh-day Adventists believe? Because many Adventists are saying right now, this is not what we believe. This is from Robert Pearson before he died, 1978. Through the years, Seventh-day Adventists have basically believed and taught that both justification and sanctification are essential to the salvation process. Both are essential. Our historical position is evidenced in Seventh-day Adventist journals, reports of meetings on the subject, and books by denominational authors. These have emphasized Seventh-day Adventist belief that both justification and sanctification are essential to salvation. In this view, justification is like the engine on the train, while sanctification is like the caboose that comes along later. In this view, both justification and sanctification are the engine to the train. Another little source that we could look at. This was a doctrinal statement produced by the leaders of the church in 1976. A group of church leaders providing a statement on righteousness by faith. Seventh-day Adventists have often used the phrase righteousness by faith theologically to include both justification and sanctification. In other words, when you use righteousness by faith, you mean both in that very word. Righteousness is concerned with justification and sanctification, with both imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. So that was a statement made by, at that time. Another one, this from the editor of the review. Those who hold sanctification to be a part of righteousness by faith seem to place greater emphasis on holy living than those who exclude it. They seem to give greater emphasis to humanity's part in cooperating with divinity in the plan of salvation. This is perhaps because they consider the gospel not merely as the good news that through Christ repentant souls may have a new standing before God, but that through him sinners may be transformed. Standing here, transforming here. And so another confirmation. Yes, I do think that uh, our friend Kenneth Samples got it right when he said that's what Adventists have believed. This is not something he dreamed up at all. All right. So number two, the human nature of Jesus Christ. And again, remembering we're not focusing on his deity. All are united on his deity evangelicals and Adventists were focusing on the human nature of Christ. Jesus Christ possessed a human nature that was not only weakened by sin, but had tendencies toward sin itself. His nature was like that of Adam 
after the fall. And so here we're talking about fallen nature with both weaknesses and tendencies to sin. This view excludes tendencies to sin. This view allows tendencies to sin from within. Number three, 1844, and I think you can guess what this one is. Jesus entered into the second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary for the first time on October 22, 1844, and began an investigative judgment. This judgment is the fulfilling of the second phase of Christ's atoning work. So we will put judgment here, and we will put final aspect of the atonement. In this view, the atonement is finished at the cross. In this view, a final aspect of the atonement is involved in the work of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary after 1844. Number four, perfect commandment keeping is possible. And number five, her writings are inspired counsel from the Lord and authoritative in doctrinal matters. The question is not, was Ellen White inspired? The question is not, was Ellen White, a, did she receive visions from the Lord? The question is simple. Do her writings carry doctrinal authority or not? That's the question. And in this view, doctrinal authority is what is taught. That means that just as in the Bible, when we go to the Bible to resolve a problem or a question, we say the Bible is the final arbiter of truth. If our opinions don't square with the Bible, we change our opinions. It decides, not we decide. And in the same way, when we come to something in the spirit of prophecy, if she's inspired by the same Holy Spirit and has the same credentials as John or Paul or Moses, then when we come to something in her writings where our opinions don't square with what she has told us from the Lord, that becomes the final arbiter of truth for us also. Amen. Doctrinal authority. Now, after he got done with this excellent summary, I thought he really hit it exactly right. Uh, then he said we can reduce all of these to two major differences. And you know what his two picks were? The question of authority was his first major difference in the writings of Ellen White. That is the number one major difference between an evangelical Adventist and a traditional Adventist in his view. And then number two, the question of salvation, righteousness by faith. He said those are the two big areas of difference out of these five between an evangelical Adventist and a traditional Seventh-day Adventist. All right, let me read you just a little bit more of what he said as he went on in his paper. The firing of Desmond Ford, who some consider the father of evangelical Adventism, which isn't quite right. Desmond Ford was the fruitage of evangelical Adventism more than the father of evangelical Adventism. Uh, there were seeds planted down through the 50s that would grow and bear fruit. And some have asked the question, well, if Desmond Ford had never come on the scene, we wouldn't have these problems, would we? Oh, yes, we would. The seeds have been planted and seeds always bear fruit. It would have been someone else. It's all right. The, the firing of Desmond Ford led to a mass evangelical exodus from the denomination. All right. 
A number of my pastor friends are no longer pastors in the Seventh-day Adventist Church following that time. Many, many evangelical Adventist leaders and Bible teachers were fired or forced to resign because they supported Ford's theology. And then he said this. It appears that there are still large numbers of Adventists who are of evangelical persuasion, but certainly not as vocal after Glacier View. And that's exactly what happened. The ones who remained believing in that theology went underground. Now, he wrote this and the date for this is 1988. And for about uh, 10 years, it was underground. But guess what? Things that go underground don't stay underground. And in the last 10 years, we've seen a resurfacing of all of these ideas from the most unusual places we could ever imagine. The ones we have trusted, the ones we have listened to, been blessed by, and we believe with all of our heart the messages they have shared with us over the years. And all of a sudden, we're hearing these messages from their lips. Strange things are happening today in Adventism. And then he concluded by saying, traditional Adventism is at least aberrant, confusing or compromising biblical truth. So if you believe this, you confuse Bible truth, he's saying. And then here is his appeal, remembering again that Kenneth Samples is not trying to attack the Seventh-day Adventist church. We have to keep that in mind. He is trying to help us as Seventh-day Adventists become more balanced. He's trying to help us. And here's how he helps us. If the traditional camp continues in its departure from questions on doctrine and in promoting Ellen White as the church's infallible interpreter, then they could one day be fully deserving of the title cult. And his implication is, I don't want to do that to you, Adventists. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. We took you off the cult list back in the 50s because you moved our direction and yet there were some of you hardliners that wouldn't go our direction. And you're still arguing these points. If you continue to push these points, we'll have to put you back in the cult category. And we don't want to. That's what he's saying to us. That's what he's saying to us. It is his appeal to help us not go down the road of the cults. Now, in 1990, he wrote an article for Christianity Today called The Recent Truth About Seventh-day Adventism. And here are a few of his thoughts at that time. Much of the doctrinal controversy that emerged in Adventism in the last several decades can be traced to their interaction with evangelicals in the 1950s. And that's a key point from an evangelical perspective. A number of us have been saying that, but we've said, oh, you're making too much of it. It really wasn't, wasn't that big a deal back in 1950s. That wasn't that critical. That didn't shift the direction of the Adventist church. Well, here's an evangelical. Much of the doctrinal controversy can be traced back to 1950s. And then he said this. Questions on doctrine, which was the book that came out of that repudiated such commonly held traditional Adventist doctrines as the notion that Christ had inherited a human nature affected by the fall, repudiated that, and an understanding that last-day believers would achieve sinless perfection. Questions on doctrine. Now, again, from an evangelical perspective, some of us say it and we get hit by saying, well, we're just kind of, you know, peering through our own glasses and we don't see it right. From an evangelical Questions on Doctrine was a clear statement 
of what would later be known as evangelical Adventism. Right? Simple to the point. A clear statement. All right, let's see what else he had to say. Evangelical Adventists were united in their understanding of righteousness by faith. It was justification only. Sanctification was but the accompanying fruit. And then he listed some of the main representatives of this group. Ah, when you get into naming names, you get into trouble. But remember, he said this. I didn't. Some of the main representatives of this group were R.A. Anderson. He was involved. He was the editor of Ministry Magazine. He was involved in the discussions in the 1950s with the various other ones. Edward Heppenstall. We call him the dean of the seminary. At Ad, and when we say dean, the dean of Adventist theologians. Trained, I sat in his classes. Almost all Adventist ministers sat in his classes. Robert Brinsmead. Desmond Ford. Smuts Van Royen. Even Hans Laurendell, he lists in that list, for some of you who might know. Then he said, a vocal and perfectionistic segment within traditional Adventism, that's over here, and okay, that's us, that's me, right? A vocal and perfectionistic segment within traditional Adventism has classified evangelical Adventism as a new theology which destroys Adventism's true identity. And you've all heard that phrase. That's where new theology came from, is the expression of describing this set of beliefs as new to Adventism, not what we have believed. New theology. And then one more little bit of analysis where we get into trouble if we say it, but listen to what he said. In the 1950s and 1960s, many Adventist students began receiving graduate degrees from non-Adventist universities. Thus, Adventist scholars were influenced by modern biblical criticism and liberal theology. Again, from an evangelical perspective, please understand, looking in, analyzing, what is happening in the Seventh-day Adventist church? I thought that that was of some importance to try to understand what is happening today in Seventh-day Adventism. Now, one more little bit of perspective. Hank Hanegraaff, radio personality, also understands Adventism fairly well. He gets questions, and he has a little article entitled, Seventh-day Adventism, Christian or Cultic? All right. We do not believe that it, Adventism, should be classified as a cult. All right. So you're not on his cult list. But it is possible to be a Seventh-day Adventist and a true follower of Jesus, despite certain distinctive Adventist doctrines which we consider to be unbiblical. So notice carefully. They will tolerate our belief in the Seventh-day Sabbath. They will tolerate our belief in baptism by immersion. They will tolerate our belief in the literal coming of Jesus Christ, not a secret rapture. They will tolerate soul sleep, not the immortality of the soul. But they will not tolerate these doctrines. This is the cutting edge difference. They will allow those doctrines and say, well, we're just not quite with the rest of the churches on these things. But this is what we must abandon if we will be Christian and not a cult. What is tolerated and what is not tolerated, you see? And then he says, 
there are some ultra-traditional Adventists emphasizing almost exclusively Adventist distinctive doctrines. Our research indicates, however, that mainstream Adventism is primarily evangelical. I haven't a clue what his research is. I don't know what his statistics are, but that's what he said. Our research indicates that mainstream Adventism is primarily evangelical. I can only go by a gut feeling. That's all I've got. I've done no statistical analysis here. I think he's more right than wrong. I think he's more right than wrong. Pardon? Who is this? This is Hank Hanegraaff. Uh, Hank Hanegraaff, uh, CRI perspective, uh, he, radio broadcaster. It is our sincere hope now, again, writing just like Kenneth Samples. It is our sincere hope that this church body, which has historically been a mixture of orthodox and aberrational doctrine, will move toward an even more sound evangelical position and away from some of its doct- the doctrinal errors of its past. See the appeal again? We want to welcome you into the body of Christ. We want to move you away from some of your extreme positions. And we want you to be a part of the mainstream of Christianity. One last little point on this overall uh, summary. Walter Martin, before he died, was getting a little nervous about the discussions that were ta- had taken place in the 1950s because he didn't think we were carrying through on those discussions. He was afraid that maybe some of our leaders were reneging on the concessions that had been made so that we would be taken out of the cult category. So he wrote to the General Conference calling for the conference's public and official statement reaffirming or denying the authority of questions on doctrine. What do you believe? You told us this back in the 50s. You put it in print in questions on doctrine. What do you believe today? And he did this in uh, 1984 or thereabouts. What do you believe as Adventists today? He got a letter from the vice president of the General Conference, who would later become president of Andrews University, Dr. Lesher. You ask if Seventh-day Adventists still stand behind the answers given to your questions in questions on doctrine as they did in 1957. The answer is yes. So, do you stand behind the compromises that were made in 1957? And the answer was, yes, we support questions on doctrine, which Kenneth Sample said was the clearest expression of evangelicalism in Adventism. And so in the 1985 edition of Walter Martin's book, Adventism is not in the cult category because he got the answer he wanted, that we still stand behind uh, questions on doctrine. But he did have us in the appendix section under the caption, The Puzzle of Seventh-day Adventism. In which he says the turbulence within Adventism is more extensive than any turmoil in the organization's history. Let's be real. There has never been such turmoil in the Adventist church as we have seen in the last 20 years. Never. Not even not even in the 1900s when uh, pantheism was wreaking its toll upon Adventism. It wasn't even close to what we're experiencing today. Now, one more little tidbit. Back in those early days, after 1950, Barnhouse, who worked with Martin in talking to us, 
uh, said that he and Walter Martin had written and signed statements by leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist movement that they, Barnhouse and Martin, had not misinterpreted Seventh-day Adventist positions. He claimed that everything he had published in regard to Adventists was read by Seventh-day Adventist leaders before being published. So they were doing their level best not to misrepresent us. And they were saying we made sure that the leaders of the Adventist church said this is what we want you to say. And then he commented on the book Questions on Doctrine to an individual. He said, Barnhouse again, he said, in a very nice way, the leaders who have written this book have moved from the traditional position of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. The leaders have moved, he said. And then he told this person, let's face the, he said, this person ought to write an article saying, let's face the fact that we Adventists have error in our fundamental positions. Let's abandon them and go forward to truth. That's what Barnhouse wanted us to say. Just admit we've got the errors and let's move toward a better truth. All right. Five points of belief. Now, I'm not going to take time to go through all five. We'd be here till midnight. But I'm going to deal with the first two in this area. Those are the two I'm going to focus on this afternoon. The first two in understanding this. What I also found very interesting is I've got a little brochure right here. Seminar, opening night, October 15, 7 p.m. This happened to be in 1999 when Doug Batchelor was presenting his Millennium of Prophecy seminar in 1999, and it was going to be broadcast at this particular church, an Adventist church, not more than 50 miles from here. And, uh, and this was going to be the major evangelistic emphasis for that year in that church, Doug Batchelor's Millennium of Prophecy seminar. You know who they invited to be the keynote speaker on opening night of this evangelistic presentation that Doug Batchelor would then have by satellite? Kenneth Samples was the opening speaker on the opening night of the Doug Batchelor crusade to win souls to Christ. I thought that was fascinating. Now, what about the differences here and what difference do they make? Now, I'm going to read from a, um, a book called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. Guess where I got the title for my message? Back, you know, a few years ago, it was amazing to some of us to see that evangelicals, Baptists and others, were linking together with Catholics on some issues like abortion and, and pornography and prayer in schools and stuff like that. So this book was entitled Evangelicals and Catholics Together. In this, they describe just a little bit about what they believe about righteousness by faith. We affirm that the righteousness of Christ by which we are justified is counted, reckoned, or imputed to us by the legal declaration of God. No imparted righteousness, only declared righteousness, declaring us righteous. We affirm that while all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are in the process of being made holy, these consequences of justification are not its ground. You see, they all believe in being made holy. They all believe in obedience. They all believe in the Holy Spirit, but not as a requirement for salvation, as a result of being saved. In other words, you are not saved by imparted righteousness. You are not saved by sanctification. And believe it or not, you are not saved by the new birth. 
Because the new birth is inward. The new birth is making you righteous. And so the new birth is the result of salvation, not the cause of salvation. You begin to see what that might do. Well, when then should the new birth take place? I've been saved. I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. I, if I were struck dead at this moment, I'd be saved. So when does the new birth take place? A day later? An hour later? A year later? When do we expect the new birth to kick in? It is not for salvation. It's a result of salvation. And all sorts of interesting things come out of that kind of thinking. If you believe that the new birth is a result of salvation. We affirm that saving faith results in sanctification, the transformation of life, in growing conformity to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And here, please note, the reason sanctification is excluded is because sanctification is seen as mostly human effort. You do this, you do that, you don't do this, you don't do that. You change your diet, you keep the Sabbath, you do the, all these things, and God pitches in a little help. As some of them put it, it's 50-50. It's 50% human effort and 50% God's grace. Do you see why they exclude it from righteousness by faith? Because there's not, you can't have human effort in righteousness by faith or you're right into legalism and works of the law. So because they believe that sanctification is largely human effort with a little help from Christ, they exclude it from the ground of salvation. That's their basis for saying that sanctification is a result of salvation, not a cause of salvation. Okay, I've been very theological up to this point. Let's get practical. What are the practical results of believing in this understanding of righteousness by faith? And again, a review article. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, is quoted. But doesn't each mistake in some way unravel the cord of acceptance by Christ. The question that is being asked there is, when you sin, do you lose your saving relationship with Jesus Christ? And the answer that is given is a very familiar statement from the book Steps to Christ. You've heard it. The character is revealed not by occasional good deeds and occasional misdeeds, but by the tendency of the habitual words and acts. So what is the answer to the question? When we sin, do we lose our saving relationship with Jesus Christ? We're not asking the question here, does God cease to love us? Does the Holy Spirit cease to work for us? We're asking the question, do we lose our salvation standing with God when we sin? And the answer is no. It's not an occasional good deed. It's not an occasional misdeed. It's the tendency of the habitual words and acts. So you slip. But your tendency is upward. You're still saved in your slips because the tendency is upward. That has been the most common statement from Ellen White's writings to prove that justification is declared not and, and does not include sanctification. So I said, let's look at that statement a little more carefully. What is the sentence before it? And what is the sentence after that statement in Steps to Christ? Here's the sentence before if the heart has been renewed by the Spirit of God, the life will bear witness to the fact. If the heart has been changed, the life will show it. Then comes this statement, the character is revealed, not by occasional good deeds and occasional misdeeds, but by the tendency of the habitual words and acts. That's how we show character. Then the next statement, sentence, our lives will reveal whether the grace of God is dwelling within us. 
a change will be seen in the character, the habits, the pursuits. The contrast will be clear and decided between what they have been and what they are. So how can you tell if you've had a born-again experience? Not by your words, but by a change in your life. Your life will be different, and that will be the evidence that a change took place in your heart. Not by an occasional good deed that you do, or even an occasional misdeed that you do. It is, you will, you will know if you've had a born-again experience by the difference in your life afterwards. So the question that Ellen White is dealing with here is the question, how can I tell if I've been born again? That's the question. The tendency of the life. Not an occasional good deed. You don't plop a thousand dollars in the offering plate to prove you're a Christian. Nor an occasional misdeed. It's the tendency. And your life will show it. So the question, how can I tell? By the tendency of the life. Not occasional good deeds and misdeeds. The paragraph does not describe or deal with at all the current salvation standing of a person who is sinning. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about how can you tell if you had a born again experience back on July 25, 1994? How can you tell that that really happened? It's not addressing the question today. If I sin, do I stand saved or lost? It's not even addressed there. The question is, how can I tell if I've been born again? How can I test that claim? All right, let's put it into practical terms. Good old David. We know his story. Had David been born again? How could you tell? Couldn't his life reveal that? But watch it. Did David always do things right out there in the wilderness running from Saul? Didn't he lie about his condition? He pretended to be insane. Remember that story? He got the high priest into horrible trouble, didn't he? And Saul came and slaughtered them all. David didn't do everything right out there. He had an occasional misdeed out in the wilderness, didn't he? But was he born again? And how could you tell? The tendency of his habitual words and acts. Not by an occasional good deed or an occasional misdeed. David had been born again. No question about it at all. His life showed it. And the Lord blessed him. So that's the question with David. The tendency of his acts. Now, here is the real point. When he was involved in his occasional misdeed with Bathsheba, did he do that all the time? Is that normal? No, that's the one time we read that he did anything close to that. And then not only doing that, he murdered Uriah, his, his, her husband. That's what he did. He murdered her, him to get his wife. That's, again, an occasional misdeed. Of course, he justified it. I'm the king, and I didn't really touch him. I just put him in the front of the battle, and well, you know. That was an occasional misdeed. That was an occasional misdeed. Didn't happen all the time. Now, the question is, when he was involved in this occasional misdeed with Bathsheba, excusing and rationalizing what he had done, was he in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father? And that becomes the question of discussion right here. These two Gospels will give two different answers to this question. Clearly understand these two Gospels give different answers. Had David been justified? What have we just said? Yes, he had been justified. Is sanctification, and we're dealing with this only, is sanctification necessary for salvation? No, 
David had a terrible sanctification apple on his justification tree with Bathsheba and Uriah. But that's not the point. He had been justified. He had been uh, saved. He had been declared righteous. Sanctification wasn't working so well. His sanctification was not operating for that period of time. And by the way, it was about a year. Do we understand that? David defended, rationalized and excused his sin for approximately a year until finally God sent Nathan to say, if you can't get it, David, here is someone who's going to tell you the problem. And Nathan hit him between the eyes. And all of a sudden, David, it dawned on him what he had really done. A year of defending his sin. And yet the evangelical gospel will say, I've tested this in class and in meetings just like this. The evangelical gospel will say David was justified during that entire year. He was in a saving relationship with Christ because he had been justified, even though he was rebelling against God by excusing his sin. He was in a saving relationship. All right. I do not believe that. The spirit of prophecy clearly says David was lost during that year. It's not even a question. David was lost. When would he, if we believe this gospel, when would he again be saved in a saving relationship with the Lord? When he fell on his knees and said, Lord, I am the man, as Nathan pointed out to me. I have taken that precious lamb, that one per had he had, that's all he had, and I've killed it. I am the man. After Nathan confronted him, he returned to a saving relationship. So do you see the point now? The statement from Ellen White says that David had a true born again experience. The habitual tendency of his life showed that. But the statement from Ellen White is not even addressing the issue. Was David saved or lost while committing his sin with that Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite? The statement from Steps to Christ doesn't address that subject. You have to go elsewhere to find an answer to that subject. And she does address that subject in other places. She says when there is sin in the heart. Christ is not there. The Holy Spirit is not there. And you can't be saved if the Holy Spirit is not there. This is one of the most misused statements in my judgment on the spirit of prophecy in relating to justification, righteousness by faith. To say that this means you can be saved while sinning. That's the way it's used. Now, I wrote this down. These are my words. Because of a false gospel based on misinterpretations of Romans 7... And this paragraph from Steps to Christ, driven by a desperate need to feel saved while experiencing more than occasional misdeeds. Some believe that David was in a saved condition all during his sin with Bathsheba. And many believe that we are in a saved condition while participating in known sins. That's where this gospel is becoming mainstream in Adventism. False assurance of salvation, I also wrote, is currently the most serious error in righteousness by faith being taught in Adventism. Fifty years ago, the most serious error in Adventism was legalism, works righteousness. Yes, it was, but no longer. Not today. The pendulum has swung clear over from that to a false assurance of salvation. And I believe this false assurance doctrine will cost the eternal salvation of hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Seventh-day Adventist church members who trust what they hear and they read. That's how serious I believe this problem is. 
To believe this gospel is to believe a false assurance of salvation in my understanding. And so that's where I think the rubber hits the road, where the theology comes into real day-to-day practice in what we are doing. Ellen White has a comment in Signs of the Times, December 13, 1899. Their constant stumbling and falling, notice not just occasional, their constant stumbling and falling reveal that they have not maintained a stern conflict with their besetting sins. They have not depended wholly upon Christ. So the constant stumbling and falling means there's a spiritual problem. There must be a forsaking of the sins the Lord has reproved before the soul can stand acquitted before God, humbled and repented. Forsaking precedes acceptance, according to the spirit of prophecy. Signs of the Times, December 13, 1899. Now, again, our brother Hanegraaff said that this is becoming mainstream Adventism. Adventist Review, May 1997, article entitled Shocked by Isaiah 53. It starts out this way. How a person can be born into the Adventist church, raised in the Adventist church, educated in it from cradle roll to graduate school, and still not understand the most basic doctrine of biblical Christianity, justification by faith alone. So that's his challenge. How can you be an Adventist and not understand? And it is the most basic doctrine of Christianity, justification by faith. Nothing else is more basic. If you have all the right beliefs on the Sabbath and the state of the dead and the wrong belief on justification, you've got nothing. Justification is salvation. Brinsmead did challenge us right when he said we are judged by the gospel we preach, not by the Sabbath we teach, but by the gospel we preach. He said the Adventist church has in recent years made great strides in understanding justification by faith alone, especially as taught in the Pauline epistles. All right. So he says, we have, we've really improved our understanding of justification. Now, what does he mean? How have we improved it? What he does in us, sanctification, and what he has done for us, justification, are still two different aspects of the gospel that must be kept theologically distinct. Now, why is he insisting on that? That these two aspects, justification and sanctification, must be kept theologically distinct. Here's why. The new birth and the new life aren't what save us. Rather, they are what happen after we become saved. You aren't saved by the new birth. The new birth happens after you're saved. You're saved by justification, which is, I believe in Jesus Christ, I accept his death on the cross in place of mine, and I ask forgiveness for my sins. That's justification. New birth happens after that. Once we accept what Christ has accomplished for us, we accept his righteousness, that he has declared us righteous, we go from condemnation to acceptance. So we are accepted now. We're saved. From alienation to reconciliation and these legal transformations, legal transformations, declared righteous, lead to a born again experience. We have been saved and that leads us to the new birth as a result somewhere down the line. And again, my problem is how much down the line, where down the line, when we're no longer condemned by God, that change begins with the new birth. No more condemnation. We've been saved. Then the new birth. 
as a later product of no longer condemned. That's how he says we need to understand justification by faith. And he says, how can we not understand that? We've been born and raised in the Adventist church all these years, and we can't understand this basic truth about justification. That's his appeal. And yet I read Ellen White, without regeneration through faith in his blood, there is no remission of sins. What's regeneration? Rebirth, inward change, heart change, making righteous, making righteous. Without regeneration, there is no remission of sins. This gospel says there is remission of sins before regeneration. Those are two different gospels, not just different words. How I wish it were semantics. These are two different gospels. That reference is Christ's object lessons 112 and 113. He said this in another article. He writes a regular column for the Adventist Review. Redemption is not something that happens in us, but something that happened for us in Jesus. Redemption has never been nor even is now in ourselves. It happens and exists only in Christ. It's not about what happens in us. It's about what happens, what happened in Christ 2000 years ago. And then a very strange column that came along later. Victories that I should have had long ago have been more distant than faint galaxies. Spiritual goals seem as unreachable as childhood fantasies. I do things now I might not have once done, rationalizing my actions in the name of spiritual maturity or freedom in the gospel. No, the problem isn't my mind, but my heart which has grown cold in comparison to those earliest days when my faith burned with a sacred fire. I found that an amazing column, reflecting on his inward experience and how it had changed from when he had first come to Christ. This gospel doesn't keep a fire alive very strong, I'm afraid. It's justification alone. We can't really change. Another one, same author. Life was so much simpler then when truth and error were so easily distinguishable. The older I get, that which was once black and white has at times morphed into shades of gray, which leads to my dilemma. The great controversy between Christ and Satan is a pure black and white affair. There's no middle ground between Christ and Satan. No gray areas, no compromise. It's pure righteousness versus pure evil. Now, if ideally I'm growing in grace, growing in truth, getting closer to the Lord, the grays should be morphing into black and white, not vice versa, right? If the ultimate issues are without shades, shouldn't the world appear to me more and more without shades, too, as I grow closer to the ideal? Instead, the opposite is happening. Amazing statements about how, how that early clarity is now becoming vague and unclear and uncertain and victories aren't there. And I'm amazed that he would put it in print. I'm amazed. And I know you want to know who it is. I'll only say it is the one who has contributed the most in recent years to the adult Sabbath school quarterly that you are all studying week by week and quarter by quarter. John Carter, in Russian evangelistic meetings, was quoted by one of his helpers. Everything God demands of me was accomplished at the cross. Everything God demands of me was accomplished at the cross. 
That's this gospel right here. All done at the cross. I just accept it. Finished. I am not getting ready. I am ready. Words from him. How different that is from the words of a hundred years ago by A.T. Jones. Listen to him speaking. Will the Ten Commandments accept any doing from anybody that comes short of God's own idea of what is right? No. Then they simply require such a measure of right doing as God's own mind measures as his will expresses. When the Ten Commandments will accept nothing short of that, how are the requirements of the commandments to be met in any man's life who has not the mind of God? So the question is, how can anyone keep the Ten Commandments? The answer of the evangelical gospel is Christ kept them. You can't accept his statement and his life in place of yours. That's the evangelical gospel. We can't keep the Ten Commandments. Christ did it for us. Believe it. And that is imputed, credited to your account. This is what A.T. Jones says. Then is it possible for any man to render to the Ten Commandments what only they will accept without having the mind of Jesus Christ itself? Therefore, it follows that I must have the personal presence of Christ himself. How do we solve it? Not by something declared 2000 years ago, but by the presence of Christ dwelling in our hearts today to accomplish what he did in Jesus Christ 2000 years ago. That's the answer of A.T. Jones a century ago, and it is almost lost today because now we are saying we can't Jesus Christ in our place. That's all we can hope for. Different answers in different eras of time in the Seventh-day Adventist church. All right. That's what I wanted to share with you about the practical difference between these two Gospels in justification and sanctification. Now, I'll spend a little bit more time on the second item here, Jesus Christ and his nature. Uh, let's see. Here's the first point that I want to share with you, if I can get the right material quickly. There it is. Questions on doctrine. Here is what it was said in questions on doctrine. Although born in the flesh, Jesus was exempt from the inherited passions and pollutions that corrupt the natural descendants of Adam. That's questions on doctrine. He was exempt from the inherited passions that corrupt the natural descendants of Adam. That word exempt is very significant. The word exempt was used by... Cardinal Gibbons, in the faith of our fathers, referring to Mary, she alone was exempt from the original taint of sin. Exempt. See, the issue is very simple. Christ can't be a sinner. If inheriting a sinful nature makes one a sinner, then you have to have some exemption. So the Catholic Church solved it by having Mary exempt. If Mary gets a sinless nature, then, of course, Jesus gets a sinless nature from her. Well, the Protestants rejected the exemption of Mary. But guess what? Protestants and Adventists have had to have an exemption for Jesus because we've got the same problem. And so Jesus has to have an exemption here, not the same as we are. Um, let me share some other things here that might be of some uh, help to us. This was what Leroy Froome, who essentially wrote the book Questions on Doctrine, said. How was Jesus born? 
A divine creative miracle brought to pass this new union of Godhead with humanity begun in the womb of Mary. The human element was not determinative in that origin. Mary didn't have anything to do with Jesus. uh, Nature. She didn't pass on any genes to Jesus. The human element was not determinative in the origin of Jesus birth. In other words, he had a created nature. God recreated in Jesus a nature like he created in Adam. Jesus' nature was created, not inherited. That was the answer in questions on doctrine at that time. Now, some saw clearly that that really wasn't biblical or faithful to the spirit of prophecy. And so they said, no, that's going too far. There was no exemption here. Uh, you uh, You can't say that Mary had nothing to do with Jesus. So we came up with another solution. And this is the current solution. Jesus received nature from Mary somewhat. He got weakness. He got tiredness. He got mortality. He was able to suffer. He was hungry. He could feel pain. He got all those things from his mother. But he was exempt from Tendencies to selfishness, tendencies to pride, tendencies to appetite, tendencies to discouragement, tendencies to lust, all you name it. He was exempt from all those pulls that you and I have towards sin. Now, which are the more serious? Which is the more serious of the human problem? The tendency to weakness, pain and suffering or the tendency to selfishness, pride and anger? There's no comparison, is there? So the new understanding, which replaces the old questions on doctrine understanding, has Christ inheriting a partly exempt nature. Not completely exempt, but partly fallen and partly unfallen. The difference is made between two words, innocent infirmities and sinful tendencies. He got innocent infirmities, but no sinful tendencies. And this is the current answer being taught throughout all of our colleges and universities right now. This is the official Adventist answer to the understanding of Christ's inherited nature at this point. And all that is is a revision of this one. That's all it is. Not totally exempt, but partially exempt in all the areas that matter and that count and are relevant. If you ever hear the word Henry Melville... Just tuck that away in the back of your mind. That was an Anglican clergyman of a century ago who first came up with this concept, and we have adopted it wholesale. Strange place to get it from. You know what? Sometimes we call them Babylon, don't we? Let me read something from those in Babylon. Dr. Harry Johnson in his book, The Humanity of the Savior. Fallen human nature was assumed by the Son of God at the Incarnation. Right out of Babylon, my friends. Karl Barth, probably the greatest Protestant theologian of our time. I had to read so many, so much of his stuff. There must be no weakening or obscuring of the saving truth that the nature which God assumed in Christ is identical with our nature as we see it in the light of the fall. Wow. C.E.B. Cranfield, uh, author of one of the most respected Bible commentaries uh, on Romans in the International Critical Commentary. We understand Paul's thought, Paul's thought 
to be that the Son of God assumed the self-same fallen human nature that is ours. We're not hearing very well. Good scholars from outside Adventism who understand clearly that the Bible teaches no exemptions for Christ, that he inherited human nature as a package, not partial exemptions, not half exemptions, but human nature from Mary, understand, from Mary, understanding whatever, uh, inheriting whatever Mary could give to Jesus. And so we have some very clear statements that seem to be uh, neglected by those who are doing this kind of thinking today in Adventism. All right, what else do I want to share with you here? Maybe that's enough on that point. Now, Kenneth Samples did a great job. I really think he did a great job. He analyzed clearly the distinction, the distinction between these two, but he forgot one thing. He didn't put in the undergirding bottom line that makes all this logical and makes sense. And, you know, the undergirding issue is why in the world are we condemned in the first place by God? Why are we sinners? You see, there are two different answers here once again of why we stand condemned by God. And this is underneath the presuppositions in this view. Sin is the nature we inherit. That birth inheritance, in this view, sin is the choice we make based on that inheritance. All right. And, you know, in Adventism, we are really foggy about this. I'm going to share what I mean by that. We can't quite understand which it is. Is it our inheritance or is it our choice? I found this in the Adventist Review in an article on homosexuality. The Apostle James recognizes a distinction between orientation and behavior. Only in the arena of moral choices and behavioral responses to one's inclinations is sin or the resistance of it possible by God's grace. Inclination alone does not constitute sin. So if you have an inclination toward this problem, you have something that will tempt you. That will push at you, that will pull at you, but you do not sin until you make choices and behavioral responses. So sin is a choice to participate in that behavior, not the inherited pull toward that behavior. Another one, this by the editors of the Adventist Review, we draw a sharp distinction between homosexual tendencies and homosexual activity on biblical grounds. We support people who struggle with the former tendencies, but we reject the practice. Clear statement, isn't it? Clear statement. So it is the choice that we make that determines whether we are in sin against God, not the tendency that is inherited in an article on cloning. Humankind did inherit something from Adam and Eve that is sometimes called fallen human nature. Adventists are careful not to confuse a tendency to sin with sin itself. Wow, great stuff. A tendency to sin is a temptation. The decision to sin is a choice you make about that tendency. As I read these things, I said, that's clear, that's precise. And then in a response from a pastor in Oklahoma to this article that I've just read, 
Of course, a tendency to sin is sin itself because it means that at least part of a person desires to sin. So if there's a pull within you, there's a part of you that wants to go that way, and that is sin. So we're now back to nature. The pull is your sin, not the choice to carry it out. Well, is he the only one who kind of thought that way? Uh, here is an article, uh, an editorial from one of the review editors. If I keep on living in the world, I will also commit mistakes and sins, especially in those areas I feel most sure of myself. So you can't really overcome sin. Now, here's another one. Here's a question that came in the review. Are we accountable for immoral dreams? I hate the things I dream. And the answer from a vice president of the general conference. Morality is ascribed to voluntary thoughts and actions. These dreams may be sad or regrettable, but they do not meet the definition of sin because there is no moral or conscious choice involved. I said, wow, that's a pretty good answer. Not a choice. Part of our nature, part of a subconscious thing working away that we don't know. And then he in the very next sentence. But of course, transgression is not the only definition of sin. Sin is also and in fact, and in the first instance, a state of being. Right after he said. It's not sin because there's no moral conscious choice. Then he said, but that's not the only definition of sin. It's a state that we're born in. And that's why there's a problem there. I found an interesting comment from Ellen White. When there is any excuse for a seemingly wrong act, it is not sin. Do I have an excuse for dreaming a dream I have no control over? Seems to me. And yet, seems to me that we are confused on this subject. Here's another one. What is meant by the expression, we are sinners even when we are not sinning? We are sinners even when we are not sinning. Same vice president answering this question. These words were coined by the early churchman Augustine. We are sinners even when we are not sinning. And then he said, however, and they said, let me add this. These words coined by the early churchman Augustine are not found in either the Bible or the writings of Ellen G. White. However, the principle is very biblical and clearly supported in the council of our church prophet. That we are sinners even when we are not sinning. Fallen humanity, even converted fallen humanity, never loses its fallenness. The internal urges to sin that humanity acquired after the first transgression. This is our basic disqualifier for heaven. Why are you going to be kept out of heaven? Basically, because you got a bad package from Adam and Eve. Fallen humanity that you still have today after being converted, the internal urges to sin, those things disqualify you from heaven. You are a sinner by nature. What I'm finding, as I said, is tremendous confusion on the subject of why we stand condemned by God in, for sin. Why are we sinners before God? Sometimes we say it this way. Sometimes we say it this way. Very Logically, this view fits with this understanding. That's why it's justification only, because you'll be sinning by nature till Jesus comes. As my colleague Desmond Ford was very fond of saying, I sin a thousand times a day. 
Now I watched him. And he lived a more upright life than I could ever think of. I was a young teacher at that time. He was the experienced teacher. He never lost his temper. He was kind. He was fair. He was everything a teacher should be. And here he says, I sin a thousand times a day. What does he mean? I have a fallen nature in me a thousand times a day. And I can never get rid of that fallen nature till Jesus comes. Therefore, I have to hold the umbrella of justification over my head until I am transformed in nature. Then I will stop sinning by nature. So justification only, sanctification can't be included because sanctification is never complete in this life. It never works 100%. That's why this has to follow from this. And, of course, this has to follow from this. If sin is our nature, Christ has to be exempted. And, of course, then there can be no sinlessness until Jesus comes because I will be sinning by nature after the close of probation. And I will not have sinlessness until the second coming. And, of course, then Ellen White can't have doctrinal authority because she teaches sinlessness before the close of probation. So she can't, you can't have her with doctrinal authority. And that messes up the investigative judgment as well because what will you judge, please pray tell? Sabbath-keeping, tithe-paying, loss of temper, those are sanctification issues. You can only judge justification. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ, you are justified. And we can't judge anything else. So do you see that this doctrine makes all of this work? This is really the engine that drives the train. This is the engine and all of these are the cars of this train. If you believe sin is choice, then there can be justification and sanctification, declaring and making righteous Christ, taking our fallen nature, a judgment of our sanctified works, sinlessness before the second coming in Ellen White with full doctrinal authority. That's the part that Kenneth Samples didn't address. And it left it kind of vague as to why all of these things should be. Well, I've taken a lot of time this afternoon, but I'm going to take just a little bit more time because I think you're going to enjoy this. This was an article in Newsweek magazine in 1998 by the religion editor of Newsweek magazine, Kenneth Woodward. 1998. Entitled Sex, Sin and Salvation. Who do you think he's writing about? Our president, Bill Clinton. Listen carefully. When the class of 1963 graduated from Hot Springs High School, the student chosen to give him the benediction was a born-again Baptist named William Jefferson Clinton. Dear Lord, Clinton began, now we must prepare to live only by the guide of our own faith and character. Direct us to know and care what is right and wrong so that we will be victorious in this life and rewarded in the next. Now, 35 years later, Clinton's sense of right and wrong is very much the issue as he tries to atone both spiritually and politically for his sexual sins. In his latest step on the road to repentance, the president recently sent a letter to his Baptist church in Little Rock seeking the congregation's forgiveness. Acknowledging the letter, Rex Horn said that Clinton expressed repentance for his actions, sadness for the consequences of his sin on his family, friend, on his family, friends and church family, and asked forgiveness from the membership. Making such a request is all the Southern Baptist tradition requires of sinners whose transgressions become public. Both the public and the private man cannot be fully understood without grasping the nuances of his Baptist upbringing. Watch carefully now. 
He was born again on October 17, 1956, when he marched up the aisle alone at Park Place Baptist Church in Hot Springs to accept Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. He was seven years old. In his youth, he walked alone to church and Sunday school carrying his Bible. He joined the choir and to this day weeps when singing old Baptist favorites. His best speeches are like Baptist sermons. But Clinton's troubled personal life and his repeated verbal evasions also bears a distinctive Baptist stamp. Please read the word evangelical right there. Because Baptist is the foremost promoter of the evangelical gospel. Like most Baptists, Clinton was taught that because he had been born again, his salvation is assured. Sinning, even repeatedly, would not bar his soul from heaven. Key point. David, Bill Clinton, same issue. Same issue. For full-blooded youths, like the adolescent Clinton, these Baptist doctrines offered considerable room for maneuvering through the sexual revolution of the 1960s. You went to church to meet girls, recalls Texas Baptist David Solomon. And with a girl, you listened to Billy Graham on the car radio Sunday nights before getting around to what you really had in mind. What Jesus seemed to be telling imaginative Baptist teenagers was that they could work out their own personal rules, permitting some forms of sexual experience without feeling guilty. Clinton's adult sexual behavior fits this adolescent pattern. Many of his co-religionists believe the president spoke Baptist truth when he testified that he did not have sex with Monica Lewinsky. No sex, in short, means no adultery, a word Clinton has yet to use regarding his inappropriate behavior. What he did is disgusting, but not what I would consider adultery, said the head of the Southern Baptist Christian Life Commission. And I think that most Baptists would agree, he said. The nation's first Baptist certainly seems to. To agree, and he formed his worldview not in the dark of a Saturday night, but in the light of a Sunday morning. Wow, what an article! What an article! In other words, salvation while sinning, as long as you're justified. Just say you're sorry, it's okay. Eventually, say you're sorry when you're finally caught at it and the evidence is all in and you can't squirm out of it. Just say you're sorry. It's okay. Sanctification really isn't part of the picture. Justification is all that matters. Evangelical theology allows salvation while knowingly sinning. That's the key. That's the key. Have to understand that. Having said all of that, and I have said some rather discouraging things here. I have said that evangelicalism is becoming mainstream in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I have said that this is becoming more and more seen as ultra-conservatism, fanaticism, legalism, names applied to all of this belief. I want to end on a positive. Not everyone has been blown away by the evangelical statements. Not everyone. This ministry magazine article 
biblical passages that deal specifically with judgment tell us that we are judged by our behavior. God will receive into his eternal kingdom those who made obedience to his will the most important goal of their life. Recent Seventh-day Adventist stress on righteousness by faith involving a neglect of specific obedience may well be an overreaction to a traditional legalistic emphasis on obedience in Adventism's past. That's all it is. Overreaction to legalism produces carelessness and cheap grace. Once again, the pendulum had swung too far. The postmodern theological drift throughout Protestantism toward de-emphasizing obedience while dwelling on the theme of God's love and mercy. We hear a lot about God's love and mercy and very little these days about obedience. Another article, this time in the Adventist Review. Now that we have been thoroughly convinced that we're saved by grace alone, we've been hearing that for a long time now, when I say a long time, at least 20 years in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, if you're in the age category of 20 to 30, you've heard it all your life. Grace, grace, grace and love. We have something called grace link, don't we? In Sabbath school lessons, grace, grace. Now that we've been thoroughly convinced that we're saved by grace alone, is there not a growing tendency to be careless about our behavior? Doesn't the same grace that saves us from the guilt of sin also give victory over the power and practice of sin? No doctrine is more clearly enunciated throughout God's word than that of the absolute necessity of obedience. Holiness is still a prerequisite for heaven. Mercy does not bypass sin. It meets sin head on without excuse. It deals with sin as sin and not as a mere mistake or an indiscretion. And one last article from a young pastor in Texas. As Adventists. Are we heading toward a theological ditch? I'm thinking in particular of what is being called evangelical Adventism with its emphasis on justification by faith to the point of neglecting holiness and the fruits of the indwelling spirit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it cheap grace. That's outside of Adventism. Cheap grace. After all the preaching on justification by faith alone, how many people in the church are living holier, more obedient and Christ-like lives now than ten years ago? We must stop swinging back and forth in our teaching, overcorrecting in one decade the overcorrections of the previous decade. It's time to straighten this car out. We must teach the gospel in its fullness, not just pieces of it. So don't give up hope, my friends. The gospel is not yet dead in Adventism. It's just struggling. It's on life support. <laughs> but that life support is the Holy Spirit and those of us who will let the Holy Spirit speak through our voices. If we're silent, this gospel will take over the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I have dedicated the last 20 years of my life to stopping that from happening. And I like and I want you to join with me if you feel that this is the true gospel of Adventism. Listen, this gospel is only known within the Seventh-day Adventist church, nowhere else as a body. All Satan has to do to delay the coming of Christ for, say, another hundred years or so is to get this gospel totally marginalized 
and obliterated from the minds of Seventh-day Adventists. He doesn't care if we keep on keeping the Sabbath. He doesn't care if we keep on believing the right doctrine on the state of the dead, if we are not going to be fooled by a secret rapture. If we're believing this gospel, he's got us. He's got us. And we're dead in the Seventh-day Adventist church. This church has no future. This is the only hope for the Seventh-day Adventist church to be the remnant as I perceive it. This is the only way I know of. And this is the only thing that Satan has to destroy if he's going to destroy the Seventh-day Adventist church. Everything else he can leave intact. All of our doctrines. But this is what is unacceptable to the evangelical mind and unacceptable for Satan for us today. This is life and death. This is survival for the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, some of us may be saved in the process Even if we have some confusion on some of these things, God is very merciful. God is going to take a whole bunch of people into heaven who have some wrong concepts. If they didn't have the light, if they didn't have understanding, God will forgive. But God will not be vindicated by by falsehood and his gospel will not be uh, and 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 his, his coming will not be be. What's the word I'm trying to search for? Will not be precipitated or brought closer by a false gospel. His coming will be delayed. By a false gospel, because he cannot be vindicated by honest error. He will save people in honest error, but he can't be vindicated by honest error. And so this is the deciding factor, I believe, in if this movement will become the remnant of prophecy. We aren't there yet. We're keeping some of the commandments some of the time. When we keep all of the commandments all of the time, by the power of God's grace, we will be the remnant. And that's what I'd like to be. I'm getting older. If we don't get it done quick, I'm not going to be part of it. And guess what? Even if you're 20 years old right now, you might not be part of it either if we slide further and further this way. We will all go to our graves wondering why Jesus hasn't come in our lifetime. Why he's delayed so long. Now is the time for decision, for action, for truly being Seventh-day Adventist and take the insults if we have to take the criticism if we have to he called us to be unique he called us to be peculiar not in the way we act but in our beliefs and in the truths we hold let us be seventh day Adventist today let's kneel in prayer please Father, one more time, we come to you on our knees on this Sabbath afternoon. Today, we want to know and we want to experience what it means to be truly born again, transformed, changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be completely new creatures, to be completely born again and transformed. Lord, may we not accept a cheap substitute, a half gospel, half truths, that give us a false assurance of salvation. And Lord, if we have loved ones who are being trapped into this by the people they respect, trust, and admire, may we have the grace and the ability to help them and draw them out of these false understandings in which they sit assured of salvation while sinning. Help us not to berate them, but to love them back to truth. And Lord, may each one of us, may each one of us put our lives on the line to defend 
the truths that you have entrusted to this church to be given to the world to protect those who are saved from being lost by the end time deceptions of Satan. Lord, this is the time we're way over time and we must right now get very serious about one thing, and that is our current relationship to the Heavenly Father, our God, and your way of handling the sin problem. May we do it your way, once and for all, for all eternity, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.